There's a gateway in our minds that leads somewhere out there, far beyond this planet. Hey, so this is the Taproot Theory Piggy Collective podcast. We're um, on video uh, and also on the audio. So if uh, if we say something and you want to see the visual, you can check out the YouTube. But we have some exciting announcements. Um, we have some good interviews coming up. A lot of them got kicked back either due to writer's strike or people being sick. So the podcast episodes have been a little bit slow. Um, I hope to, to get uh, a lot of stuff coming out around Christmas. And we're always a welcome. Um, we always welcome like suggestions if you guys know of a guest that would be good or are a guest that you think would be good to me an email um but what's really exciting is we now have a new therapist and a new co-host to the podcast because there are you know five other therapists at taproot plus the qeg and neurostimulation and then everyone in our referral network but most of them um you know are just kind of busy and, and don't want to do, do a podcast it's not it's not up their alley uh you know they, they'll, they'll like it but um alice wanted to do that which is awesome because we need another perspective and you guys don't have to listen to me as much um and i will have to write less think piece essays to read in my like monotone voice so uh i'll turn it over um alice will be working at taproot um hopefully in less than 90 days um but it will take at least that long to get a network with insurance so it'll be coming up you know probably after christmas but we're so happy to have you this it was kind of um synchronistic how we met i was uh you kind of came out of the blue as being a perfect fit for uh, practice a little bit out there. So yeah. um, you want to say a little bit about like your, uh, your like practice as a therapist and, and uh, you know, perspective. And we, I think today we're just going to have kind of a general conversation about the state of the industry and the, the way that, uh, the way that it works and, and the way yeah. that we do therapy. Yeah. Um, I've had a kind of a roundabout experience. I felt like I've been, uh, you know, I, I'm a person who wanted to be a therapist since I was like in young years. You know, I had trauma around me that I didn't identify as trauma until way later, like had to hit grad school before I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> My childhood was really traumatic. Um, trauma and intuition coming from the same part of the brain is like a, a, a thing that we've made a lot of hay with. That yeah. You can't really tell the difference between a trauma response and intuition. But usually if you have childhood trauma, you know, your intuition is very heightened just kind of as a, a protective mechanism to try and see the future or understand people right. or keep yourself safe. Um, but then that comes from trauma. So you usually are pretty effective if you deal with the trauma. Um, but that's the trick, right? We all think we have and then the shadow is still there a little bit. So um, right. I try and wear mine on my sleeve. So it, uh, I know where it is in the room. But Yeah, totally. It's very easy to um, when you've been a victim of abuse and trauma you suppress everything that you all your opinions and all your all your thoughts because nobody's going to honor them and um yeah you just kind of like you said you kind of start and you ignore your intuition or you follow mm -hmm. your intuition but you use it for the wrong reasons it's like you are so um attuned to people um well i think that intuitive personality type like the magician like it's like it's not it's not immoral it's amoral i mean it, you can you can use it unconsciously and it's the same energy with yeah. as the stand-up comedian or or the con man or the grifter who's able to figure out who you are what are you running from yeah. how do i sell that to you to make it feel right yeah. they're using what you need and not what you want to control you whereas a therapist is giving you what you need and what you want to help you but you know nurses social workers teachers they're all those high intuitive feeler types when they do the MBTI or um, 
you know, yeah. the intuition is like really high. It's just, if it's unconscious, it's trying to figure out how to sell you a Rolex, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the person who's able to stand up as a stand up comedian and be like, all blankety blanks are like blankety blank. You ever notice that? And you're like, Ooh, wow, you should, but that's true. I mean, they're seeing this systemic pattern that's not allowed and, you know, right. Um, right. But I don't yeah. know. When, yeah. It's this, it's like intuition gives you this. It's a, I don't know. It connects the dots in your neural pathways, mm -hmm. advanced level that you are very high vibrational level that is hard to, it's hard to intentionally train. You can't intentionally train it very well. It's just about like differentiating, like you said, a trauma response versus intuition. Like that's the only way to really train it. I feel. I had an analyst tell me one time when way back when in the, I was in therapy, uh, and she said something about it being really hard to see this stuff. I just didn't want to. I just kind of wanted to be normal. Um, and she was like, you can't. You can't turn it off. You have to learn how to hold it. But you you're, you, you, can't you can't turn that thing off, you know? Right. Um, which was hard to hear um, because it, it is hard to hold. Yeah. Yeah. But then, it. I mean, it, I don't know. You hit <laughs> sometimes you just hit a complete rock bottom and then you realize it's your superpower. Um, and that's kind of my, my, um, story. I don't know. It felt like there was a lot of rock bottom in my mm -hmm. life. And then, um, but the field always lit me up totally. Like, mm -hmm. especially like in grad, grad school is very healing and it's not a coincidence that I was also way away from far away from my family and my mm -hmm that I'm a part of um, in, you know, the state where we're from. Um, I went to school out in Colorado and it was... Um, Where'd you go? I went to University of Colorado. I did, uh, I was at Boulder for my undergrad and um, the counseling psychology program is in Denver. On the I wonder Denver. if you were in school with my cousins. They were out there at the same time. They weren't counseling. They were like uh, welding and, and art. I'm an art professor out there now. Or a oh, cool. welding professor. Uh, and then another one works professionally as a like metal metallurgist. They fly around and oh. do big staircases and things. But yeah, they were all out there at the same time. The, the, their last name is Blackstock. So you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I always feel like I never know anybody that. Well, it's a big place. I mean, I went to Swanee, yeah. so it's like technically two thousand students, but like you knew everybody. Even like yeah. even if you didn't meet them, you you knew what kind of food they liked because you'd seen them in the cafeteria. You know, yeah, once a week at least like it. it Funny was so tiny in such a weird, weird place. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was strange. I mean, at CU, there's like maybe five. When I was there, there were maybe five people from Alabama. And it's like you just sort of knew you caught on to who the other people were. Mm -hmm. They're from Alex City, which I thought was so random. Like, how in the world did you end up at CU? And he would drive back for the Florida, Georgia, for the Auburn, Georgia game like every like two weeks into school drive all the way to Alabama to see that game and then drive all the way back. And it's like, yeah, the, the football is Mecca thing is, is pretty unique to Alabama. I mean, they, they like sports enough to like have a riot and burn down the city and, and other college towns, oh, yeah, but yeah. there's not people in their sixties, like making a pilgrimage just to touch the grass on the quad. You know, <laughs> I don't know. There is, right. it has more of a religious, uh, like, uh, yeah. element in, in Alabama for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the religion's more about skiing and snowboarding out there. In the it is. It really, like, I, when we, uh, I remember knowing people who were like, you know, oh, your dad's from Colorado. When are you going to take your daughter skiing? And I was like, well, she's, like, 
one and a half. I, I don't know. Like if I go skiing, she wants to go maybe, but, it, and, and we would go on the ramp and there would be people Wait, who so your like, dad was from Colorado. Yeah, he was. Well, oh, his, his, my dad's family was military, so they moved everywhere. And then the last stop when I guess my grandmother and my granddad got divorced was Colorado. So she stayed there. So that was kind of the last home he had, I guess, but he was in Huntsville and he was everywhere. Oh, okay. Um, so you never, as soon as he met, made friends and have to leave. And I think, you know, it's kind of a hard way to grow up. Um, but okay. then his brother stayed out there and his brother recently passed away. He's a really nice guy. He had a construction company. And so they, he has three boys and, um, wow. Those are my cousins. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, the, what is it? The, um, you said something I wanted to jump back to. We were talking about skiing and snowboarding being like, yeah, we, we, well, when I was even as a kid, I'd go up there and there's people that like literally had a, like a one and a half year old baby in a suspender thing. So you had to hold it because it can't do anything, you know, uh-huh. in skis, like in between their legs, like getting them ready for that. It was like, oh man, they, they really, they really like it. They like live, live to do it. So yeah, the little um, ones are better. Like they, and they don't use um this, you know, the pole. Mm-hmm. When you're li- really little, so they're just like buzzing around on their skis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, grown ups. <laughs> yeah, my dad always wanted to take ski trips, and we, you know, we were all from Alabama, didn't know how to do it. So, oh yeah, uh, or, I mean, I, I, I passingly know how to, but I, I'm not, I, I'm not yeah. gonna win any contests. Yeah, I can talk about it, but I really didn't go that much. Um, and yeah, it's I have. You had to get up really early, and it's so cold, and the ski. It's really expensive too. Ski lifts are kind. <laughs> Are very anxiety provoking. <laughs> yeah, um, the ski lifts were like the most fun part to me. But the oh, waiting really? four hours to be on the ski lift was yeah. not, um, you know, in four yeah. in the morning. Yeah. Did, so I guess you know you're coming into our practice, and and we kind of discovered that we were kind of in the same world. Our practice is a little bit niche for the area, maybe for everywhere. But um, can you say a little bit about like your style and and kind of what brought you into it and and the things that you fuse because. It sounds like, and especially going back to your bio, like some of the older stuff from when you were in private practice, you know, uh, before is like still there. And yeah. it looks like kind of what happened to you happened to me, or kind of what happened to me happened to you where you go into therapy, you come out of grad school and you're like, I'm going to be this kind of therapist. And then, you know, two months in, you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't work. I don't like that. And then you end up doing, you know, something that you never really would have thought just because you want to help people and it's working. Yeah. And you end up going in this new direction. Yeah. Um, it's like the clients in your community are different, you know, like the community of people that I would have been working with in Colorado are very different than the community here. So um, it's, it's, I don't know. It's interesting. Like the groups of people who gravitate towards therapy, for example, kind of, and like I was doing very purist family and couples work. um, And I, even you like, were using Gottman at that point, the Gottman method. Gottman and emotionally focused therapy, like Susan Susan Johnson, um, Sue Johnson. Yeah. And- I like EFT. I, I I don't I've never seen the test. Um, I've known people that did it, but Gottman. I was always kind of curious. I'd always wondered what the, you thought of that because I mean, it, for people unfamiliar, it's a and correct me where I'm wrong because I don't do it, but it's like a test basically, which is pretty good for the Gottman Institute. I imagine it's lucrative. But the couple actually does a test that you that they have to pay the institute for, and then they send the results to the patients and the therapists. And it's like this is where you're good in the relationship. This is where you need work. And yeah, it's this well, whole kind I of screener. I didn't experience that way. Um, the Gottman stuff is great. I they'll give they give you a huge book. It's it's extremely evidence based, which is 
like very hard evidence base where he's been mm-hmm. in a lab, like has a lab where couples come and stay there yeah. for like a couple of weeks or, and they, and he's been doing this for like 40 years where okay. they, and they code every single interaction of the couples in the, in like a setup apartment and mm-hmm. like they have a breakfast room and everything and they record everything. And, um, and so they have all these statistics about reality TV, science, reality TV. <laughs> yeah. They have all these, um, th- this amazing statistics and relational work about different behaviors and what predicts divorce um mm-hmm. in married couples you can predict like within a 96 percent uh accuracy which couples are going to still be together in five years versus which mm-hmm. are not without intervention mm-hmm. so, and if you intervene and use so there are a lot of assessments that you can use for Gottman. Mm-hmm. do it you can I never did it where you had to send something in. So everyone that I've ever known in this area that did it, that's what they did is the patient came in and then they made the patient like log on to the website. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, and like pay the Institute. I don't know what 50 bucks or something. And then they did the test in the first session. And then when the results came back, they were like, okay, this is what we're working on. But that's the only way I'd ever encountered it. Schema therapy is kind of like that too. Isn't the schema Institute like you, you, do a test, but they're in control of the test. You can't just buy the test and apply it yourself. You have to kind of pay the institute. Well, with the God, if I have like a stack of, of assessments like this thick, and I put I myself put, then you're supposed to be able to use them for anybody. So, hmm. uh, and it's not like a big, it's not like one big test. There's like a page that evaluates this page that evaluates that, and huh. um, and it's more like checklists that you then there's not. Like they're not coded. Like there's not a um, you don't get a score on it. You just it's all intuitively interpreted. At least when I did it, but I tra- I trained like 15 years ago, so maybe they're. I mean, that's a they have a very good brand, um, and their stuff is really solid. Like I love their yeah. stuff. Not it doesn't have a, it doesn't have like a warped perspective on couples. It's generalizable to any mm-hmm. any population, same sex couples. Like it is. Um, yeah, I like it a lot. And I found that this is one thing that people say that I found also to be true is that um, kind of the the um, the stereotypical like man who gets dragged to couples therapy by his partner, um, that sort of person loves the Gottman stuff because it's mm. very it's very concrete and like is able to put into context um these concepts that a lot of people who are way more like concrete think black and white thinkers don't um it's much easier to grasp it's like oh okay here's some actual tools and here's you know what i'm actually doing that's causing this this thing i mean it gives you some action oriented um, Mm -hmm. work on but yeah it's kind of just informs my perspective i was working for a while where i was doing where i did the assessments and then it just kind of got, cl- it gets clunky to me. Like that's, that's part of. Generally therapists start with tons of assessments. Like everyone yeah. I knew right out of school, including me, it was like, Oh, suicide screener, this, 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 this. And then right. when you've done it enough times, it's kind of in your head and you, you do it for court or for liability or for, you know, the patient's request, but you kind of learn the assessment enough that you're not just covering up patients with paper. Um, right. In my experience, I mean, not yeah, that that's the right well, way to do it. And I, this is another, like, I really found that um, 
like in school, we learned that uh, we were really taught everything over us. Like once we got into practice, everything was over a solution focused kind of framework where we're all do like we could be doing something like narrative therapy, which is very, very deep and um, wordy <laughs> and takes a long mm -hmm. time narrative therapy um or a, a, lot, a lot of art and stickers oh. and billboards and books and <laughs> yarn and narrative therapy <laughs> no i don't use yarn but mm. just like like really focusing on people's language and helping them restory their mm -hmm. um memories and things like that but um with the assessment like or I, I just always felt like you know it's really the we, we had learned that it's people get the effect of therapy within 10 to 12 sessions and then after that it's mm -hmm. not it's no like the results show it's no longer really effective i don't think that now i'm like okay that's cognitive therapy the patient probably absorbs everything that you can say on the script and yeah in i mean it, 20 it, sessions it, i would think but it's like you work with somebody who's dissociating and yeah it, it can take like 15 sessions for you to see for you know their parts to be comfortable even like kind of creeping out you know when you're mm -hmm. a standard yeah, because the, um, the, the more uh, vulnerable and kind of repressed parts don't even feel safe for a long time. Yeah, um, it's really about, you know, the relationship. But then other clients, I like I really tried not to practice in a way where I was expecting people to just keep coming indefinitely. Like I was trying to mm -hmm. help people get better and, and move on. And so sometimes it just really would feel like, okay, I feel like they've gotten the benefit of mm -hmm. this work right now where they are within like three sessions or within. Yeah. It, it is wild that you say this one thing sometimes and it's like, you're done, you know? Yeah. And then other times it doesn't work like that. But I mean, yeah. our, I think we both agree on like push the patient into the bad place, teach them to be independent, to not run from it, you know, that, right. Like, and, and then go forward and be careful, you know, you're not pushing th people into things they're not ready for, but exactly. the goal of therapy is really to internalize your own wisdom. And you, you know, sometimes as a parent, sometimes as a shaman, sometimes as a friend, or just a kind of voice of uh, other language, you internalize the therapist's voice in your head and you decide which parts are you and which parts are not. Cause you know, I'm different from my patients. They're not supposed to just believe everything I believe or think everything I think. Right. And then it's there and you're independent and you're, you're good. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, and that's, yeah, I, and, and that's, and that's where it's like the assessments, like mm -hmm. when using your first few, few sessions to throw assessments at people, you, you lose, it's like the critical period of, well, you, yeah, of you lose patience. You them. Yeah. You lose the, you lose the possibility of connecting with them in the way that, um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't the, know. Yeah, I think the school in the '90s probably has a trauma response to scantron sheets. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I sure do. I sure do. Um, well, yeah. And and the thing that is is interesting to me is you know you're talking about Gottman being evidence based, and and we talk a lot about using evidence based practice as it exists, like accepting research for what it is. Uh, and I, I like research. I mean, I I pull academic journals all the time and and read this stuff. But I also understand the role that research has. And I, you know, I think both of our criticism is that sometimes people use it to turn off their brain. Like you're saying that they told you in school, 12 sessions of therapy, anything beyond that, you're not getting anything out of. Well, I believe that, but that's based on when I'm doing psychoeducation and ego management strategies and cognitive therapy, you absorbed all that by 12 to 15 sessions. Right. 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 So when you're, so the research can measure that because that's objective, you know, that can be turned into a number. 
But when you start saying like, well, there's a vulnerable part of the client where I, I saw another side of them where they, you can't turn that into a number, but that's right. still part of therapy. You know, so I, I, I want to make yeah. room for that in therapy too. That isn't something that, that research can do. A case study can do that, you know? Right. Um, and that, that's kind of why my criticism of the way that we do academics now is that we don't even really read research journals to be read by people. We read them to make careers. We write them to be cited by because your impact yeah. factor, my my pay as a professor or my, and my salary is based on my impact factor. Like the impact factors for the journal. What's the I forget the I forget what the metric is, but basically the more somebody cites your papers. Right. Yeah. The better your number is. Which, you know, kind of makes sense. But what happens is no one writes a case study because not everyone's going to cite that. What they're going to do is be like, we extrapolated 10 different sets of data and then controlled them for different variables. And you cite everything and you have this giant, uh, what do they call them, like, you know, analytical uh, review of multiple studies. So then more studies have to cite that. But you read them and it's like, this is not helping anyone do therapy better. This is written for someone to cite it. And it's, yeah. when you, it's like when you land on those pages on the internet that you're like, oh, this was written for Google to read. It's not right. written for a human to read. It's being like, right. you therapist area, are you hungry? But, you know, yeah, just really kind of looks like an AI wrote it. Yeah. And I, it's, it's kind of interesting, like in the broader public sphere that there is this, every, you know, people who don't know what the words mean are, declaring that they want evidence on you know where's your evidence where's your peer-reviewed papers to back up this claim like people who don't actually know but what you, it's a concept about. you can't peer review but it's still you kind of intuitive it's and like, useful but nobody has access to like okay there's you can look up research on google but it is not the same as being in a university library and having mm. access to all the databases like there's the real research is accessed through people who are in academia. It's like you can't even be a person walking around. Yeah, those subscriptions are $800 a month if you want yeah. to get a show host or something. Yeah. I mean, we, we paid to access some of them for a while. Exactly. And you can't just like I've tried like you can't just join a university library like you can't. There's not an option to do that as far like even my even see you like my. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, as an alum, shouldn't they let me be able to be a library member? <laughs> no. Um, well, a lot of people will teach a class if they want to keep a foot in the door with research. They'll just teach one college class at like as an adjunct or something. Yeah. Just to get access to the library. Because yeah. once you have that email, you can log into the university. But if you yeah. don't, you, you can't. Well, yeah, totally. And it's. It's. Oh, I just lost my. Um. Oh, and I mean, and, you know, so there's the effect of people need to write research in order to get tenure and those types mm. of things you're talking about. And then it's like you realize that it's like the only things that get funding are the things that schools want to fund. And which is pretty trendy, too. I mean, trendy is as science is as trendy as like English or something, you know, where it's yeah. like. Braided narrative is now in. Oh, now somatic. Now, now somatics are the thing that you do in the English department. You know, like right. the, it changes. I mean, science does the same thing. Like it's it's it just as kind of fad chasing. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the way it's funded, not in in the you know the discipline itself. If it was followed, you know, scientifically. Yeah, it's like the powers that be decide what the perspective of the school is going to be, and then you identify somebody who will do research to back up that opinion, mm -hmm. and then you fund. Or, you know, and 
I mean, and it's really also based on who are the people who are paying, who are giving money to the school, the big corporations, and that dictates what studies are funded and not. And well, and we tend to only research things that we already think we know the answer to in order to right. prove that. And then when it proves us wrong, we don't change. Like, I mean, evidence, the exhibit A is the DARE program, right? Like you have Nancy Reagan being like, we're on drugs, whatever, instead of, you know, education or something that was, you know, kind of useful or, or funding or kind of meeting the needs of these communities. Let's just go, you know, scare kids straight with D.A.R.E. And then they they kind of try to make D.A.R.E. different later on. But whatever change they made, we researched D.A.R.E. for a decade. It made kids do more drugs. If you took a school that right. didn't have a D.A.R.E. program and then you did a D.A.R.E. program, drug use went up. And yeah. then you could compare that to and like, there was no way around it. I mean, the research yeah. said that. And they kept being like, oh, well, maybe we need to control for that. No, the, like, the D.A.R.E. program didn't work. It made kids do drugs. <laughs> Did we quit doing the D.A.R.E. program? No. Like, because we, we kept throwing more money at research to try and get the study to say that yeah. actually it worked. And it just yeah. didn't work. Yeah, you, know? you get really disillusioned because it's like then you you learn that we know best practice for all these things like in education, for example, and then you figure out, well, it's no, nobody who is a teacher or in education really gets to make the calls about what they study in schools. You know, it's oh, like education is the worst for the way that researchers use that like that. Like yeah. They, yeah. they'll, they'll come into education and they'll like every bit of data that we have going back to the beginning of research says, even if the teacher is not good, even if the teacher is incompetent, if the classroom is smaller, the kids will do better. Just hire more teachers, pay mm -hmm. teachers. And and that's never what they've done. All the research right. has said that. It works 100 times. What they do is they go in and they're like, oh, well, Pearson Hall has this information technology uh, communications education platform. And it's yeah. two points better than the the one by Epson that's, you know, Play-Doh. So we need to switch to the Blackboard program. Well, Okay, you're talking about these incremental tiny gains for millions and millions and millions of dollars where right. you know that it's going to be 65% more effective if you just hire teachers and you don't have 35 kids in a classroom, you know, right. but they, that's not they're not doing research to figure out what works. They're doing research to figure out how to justify the payments to these giant corporations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this isn't to knock on research. I mean, studying cause and effect is inherently helpful. We're talking about what the ethics outside of the study and like in graduate yeah. school, you learn, oh, the ethics of the study, all this, whatever. They're talking about inside the study, but the yeah. ethics of who funded it, how's it used, where is it coming from? We just turn our brains off and act like anything that comes out of these journals is magic. And I, I, I just it's strange. I, I don't yeah. I mean, I like research for what it is, but it is what it is, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was I went through the whole application process for PhDs and PsyDs, um, which went fine. <laughs> like, I could, But I, it was just like the experience of that where it's just like you're looking, you have to look at, look through the professor's um, research, like the professors who work in each individual program, look at what their research background is and find someone who sounds like they might match up with what you want to study. So it was, it's like, you have to find somebody in the country who wants to study the same thing as you're interested in, which, by the way, there's nobody as far for whatever it was that I was yeah. like. At. So then it ends up that you tailor all of your applications to, OK, well, that guy has interest mm -hmm. in his bio, but I have to write a completely different essay saying I want to do this kind of research for this program. And well, and just the amount of abuse and corruption in those systems where people, you know, you one, I mean, just the idea that you have to work for free, I don't think is right. And then two, right. or, you know, right. not even work for free, you're paying to work. You right. know, you're doing, right. 
doing work for these guys, but then the amount of professors that, you know, financially, sexually, I mean, there's just, you see all this, that system, the power is so lopsided mm-hmm. that even if it's not that everybody is bad, but you're, it's just enabling the worst behavior. Right. Um, and, right. and, and, and the, just the competitiveness of it, you know, that you're never safe because all these people, you know, more than anyone else in the world about this teeny tiny little area. And all the other people who know as much as you do about that teeny tiny little area are fighting for your job. Right. So, I mean, that's that just seems lonely and sad. I don't know. Uh, um, I mean, and, and it's not a huge. It's not like everywhere in academia is like that, but it is a trend that I think. You know, look at the seventies onward. Oh, it, it gets oh, worse. <laughs> Go ahead. I said I don't know. It seems yeah. like it is kind of like everywhere is like that, but. Um, well, and what it, what gets me though when you're saying like using research for what it is, sometimes you know intuitive concepts and soft sciences are inevitable, and even in hard sciences, like intuitive concepts and metaphors are used, right? But it's like you get so much flack because like I'll write something and then somebody will send me an email and be like, "Well, you shouldn't have a license because you said the unconscious and the unconscious is not evidence based." And it's like, what does that mean? Like you know, you guys said that the unconscious doesn't exist. We're right. just the ego. That's all we are. And now you're going back and being like, well, Carl Jung was still wrong. And I'm never going to admit that. I, it's the same professors, too. I mean, th- these guys have been publishing since the 80s, but now it's trendy to talk about trauma. So they're like, well, there's primary, um, secondary, and tertiary memory, or oh. there's implicit memory that is nonverbal yeah. and shows up as a symbol from the body brain as a trauma response. And you're like, oh, you mean like an unconscious? Like, right. What what this you you're it's a semantic distinction, but they're not ever going to say I'm wrong or I was wrong. You yeah. Know. Well, and I I mean it's it's just so the emperor's new clothes because guess what you can't prove anything. Like there is no you know you can't prove anything. Everything in hard physics is a theory. Like it's well, the, not the a, same thing that will happen when that's you. That's just what it is. Yeah, yeah, like the same people who say, well, the unconscious doesn't have a space or whatever. You, I'll be like, okay, let's look at what you're writing. And I'll look on their LinkedIn article and they're like, well, self esteem is this new concept. And you're like, self esteem is still a metaphor. Like, you can't distill yeah. this into a t- tube. Self esteem is not evidence. Like, what, right. these, but it's a useful metaphor that helps people understand the phenomenology of how we think and helps them under, break the self into parts to feel it and then get better. So, if it works, wh- right. what does it matter if I can't? you know empirically validate every single part of the process we can study the process and see if it works like exhibit a uh, antipsychotics you know we spend all this money trying to figure out why antipsychotics work we know they work you know you're never going to tell somebody with schizophrenia who apparently schizophrenia go off your medication because we don't really know exactly why this works yet right but we spend all this money about the dopamine theory of schizophrenia 10 years later turns out we know less about why those work um now it's sensory gating is like the primary theory on 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 it but we spent all that money to figure out that we don't really know what our guess about why we thought it worked is wrong. But we still right. prescribe antipsychotics because we know that as as a method, they are effective, uh-huh. not as a method. They're effective, even if we don't understand exactly what's happening. So when you study IFS or EFT or any of these things, yes, you can't validate every little vocabulary word that I have to use. And most of it's going to be semantic anyway, you know, but like you know that those things are effective because a patient with PTSD went into it and then 65% of them got better on the other side versus this other model, but they don't want to do that kind of research. Yeah. And even the people who do research don't, it's like, they don't get that. I I don't, I don't understand. Um, 
And that, well, I think they're so defensive because you have to be so defensive about yourself to even get to be successful in that area that it's like those people don't want to admit that the whole field is like basically a sham. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> well, it's not even like soft. Like the thing is like you're going to run into intuitive concepts and metaphors in soft science inevitably. But even in very hard sciences, they're still there. I mean, you sit in fifth grade and they tell you, OK, well, here's the atom. It's a circle and it has to have the same amount of protons as electrons. And so the atom's happy when the hydrogen gets one electron and it's then it isn't happy when it doesn't whatever. That's all completely made up. Like there's subshells right. where a particle is popping in and out of existence and you're calculating a fraction of a possibility of where it might be. The atom's not happy. It's not happy. Like right. there's not right. a circle where there's two protons and then we're going to dot two electrons. That's right. what you teach people to start to understand the yeah. balance of yes, forces in the natural thought. world when they're in fifth grade. Like, right. but you, no one's going into, you know, the, the fifth grade classroom and being like, that's not evidence-based. Why don't you, you know, show them the CERN data? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right right oh my gosh that's because you're you're building a bridge where they're starting to help them understand how these things interact and that's the mo and that's a metaphor it's not true it's not true that adam's not happy there's not two electrons in a hoop around two protons right. and then they cancel out the electric force that isn't how atoms work yeah but we still use that to start to understand how these vastly complicated systems work in order to to use them. And it's just sitting with that uncertainty causes a certain kind of clinician so much anxiety that they really want to run back to a model and say, well, I did this right, but not wrong. And I think that's where you start to get unethical because I never feel like I did it right or perfect. I'm always running cases and being like, what did, what, what do I not know? What could I have done different? What could I have seen coming? You know? Yeah. And I, I'm not you know, the best clinician out there, but I'm trying to be better all the time. And you lose that ability when it's just, well, I'm going to read this book or do the CE. I'm going to do what they said, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You get out of touch. That's when you lose, lose track of your intuition, which is the thing that you can't study or manufacture. Mm -hmm. That's when, you know, you just get so consumed and having to do things exactly like this person is saying, mm -hmm. but you can't, you can't ever do that though, because as you're saying, I mean, it kind of gets to the point of like la all language is metaphor language is and language is just how we, is how we structure all of our thought, but mm -hmm. like all like language isn't evidence-based. It's just yeah. our very like categorization of different concepts in our lives. And we've like created sound to signal to other people that we're thinking about this thing, but you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, and I mean, I think like there was some guy that was going off on Twitter that was like, no one, you just, you say that you, you attack somebody's semantics or the way that um, they're using symbolic language when you don't like their point, right? Uh -huh. But like, so, you know, he was like, you know, you can never do this. And like, you should only just be terribly literally metaphors are for weak losers that are, are you know, illogical and are, are ruled by emotion or whatever. Occam's razor, blah, blah, blah. And it's like Occam didn't have a razor. That is a metaphor that right. a philosopher made. <laughs> like you did yeah. the thing, like at the end of your post. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. And like you said, I mean, and and what I would say before, I mean, electro an electron, like that's an it's it's like a way that we like kind of describe this type of energy, but there's not like a little thing there. Like mm -hmm. it's not. I mean, and how do you even define what a thing is? Because there's you know all energy is diffuse and there's really not a difference between you and everything that's around you so it's, I, I mean 
I'd be curious to see what you thought of this because this is something that like I've played around with for a little bit. Is like because I I really like the history of the profession and reading all of it, even even the weirdest models. Like yeah. I love like to curl up by the fire with like the models <laughs> that I really don't like that yeah. all came out in like the 90s when in healthcare and insurance is getting really corporatized. And so everything had like solution focused or brief or time limited or like crisis centered in front of it, you know, yeah. <laughs> like because they were trying to make it shorter. But I, I think the models kind of the way they fit together, they all seem to break down to me on like two axes. Like one is, you know, ego versus like unconscious subcortical brain. So, you know, something like CBT is, is very ego management strategies it's very ego based on that axis whereas something like you know a Jungian analysis or whatever is dealing you know only with the unconscious you know it's a depth psychology and then the other axis is that is it analytical where the provider has all the power and they're telling you oh you smoke cigarettes because your mom made you orally fixated or is it experiential are you being like i don't know what you're feeling or why you're doing it but i'm going to push you into that feeling and so something like gestalt therapy is going to be incredibly experiential or brain spotting is experiential you're pulling this person into a feeling i don't even know what they're feeling you know mm -hmm. i'm just pulling them into that so that the brain can heal itself and I, I have faith that on the other side of facing this thing whereas analytical is well maybe your jaw's locking up because they wouldn't let you talk in school and so you learned you know yeah uh, and but they to me that's that that's the access that you can put all the models on and see kind of how somebody's thinking if that makes sense and yeah. what do you think about that or uh, i don't know is that is that wrong no i mean i yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, they're all just kind of different ways of looking at the same thing. That's always kind of what we, what we get back to. And like when you're saying like solution focused, it's, it's, it's a way that they, it, it was like a, it's a reaction to insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And so, so then we have research that backs it up and mm -hmm. who's really funding that research and what schools is it from and where do they get their funding? Do they, and where does big pharma giving their funding? You know, it's, mm -hmm. all, it's all linked. Well, I mean, the reason I think those axes are useful though, is that yeah. they, I mean, they are all, all the models are trying to do the same thing and that you get people to feel better and change behavior, but there's different parts of, I think, phenomenology of consciousness that the, inventors of the models are the people who gravitate to them don't want to sit with, you know? Yeah. Um, like even, uh, you know, Irvin Yalom's the existential therapy guy. A ton of people come to therapy because of Yalom, but he still is so analytical. Like he's, he really, um, like he's very kind of ego based thinking about this. I mean, he has that quote in one of his books about how he went to see like a somatic medicine person and he didn't get any change at all. And he did, he doesn't think that that works, but the, the most helpful thing the guy said was at the very end of it, he was like, well, if the meditation like doesn't help you sleep, um, just remember that you can always get a gun and shoot yourself. And then Yalom was like, oh, wow. And that really put things in perspective for me and whatever. And it's like, you're kind of telling on yourself, you went into not an analytical ego language place. You went into a felt experience of like, uh -huh. maybe I really don't matter too much on this. And, and Yalom's brilliant. You know, I'm not, I'm not like critiquing him, but he is very suspicious of anything that is not able to be understood in language you know he's he, he's a he's an existential guy he likes he likes existential philosophy and is very kind of mind over mind over matter right um, right yeah um yeah i'm trying to think <laughs> or where um you know where do you fall in your practice after having done this for i mean you've been a therapist for what 10 years yeah uh yeah, something around there. Um, I, 
Yeah, I kind of, I, I started out really trying to be like extremely evidence-based, but I was also, I mean, evidence-based can mean stuff like narrative therapy and um, emotionally focused therapy. There are so many different practices that are evidence-based. That Emotionally focused therapy is pretty researchable. I mean, it's incredibly evidence-based. That's all the people that are like, well, you have to do CBT because it's the gold standard for this. It's like, well, not in these areas. EFT is actually outranking it. So why aren't you doing that one? If you're really right. following the research as much as you're saying. I mean, right. Sue Johnson proved if you just take the partner's loved one or you put, put the patient's loved one in the room, their outcomes are like 50% better. The person right. doesn't have to say anything. Just somebody yeah. who they love going to therapy with that makes it better. But yeah. we don't do that as a profession. You know, we don't. Most people are like, I'm an individual therapist. I'm not going to see your partner, or, you know. Yeah, I mean, and her work really, really, um, that was a big, learning about attachment and the way that she taught it was a huge turning point for me. And when I uh, went to a training with her in grad school, it was just like everything fell into place when I saw mm -hmm. Sue Johnson talk. That but she is so moving. Um, and it just felt like, and I was so into couples and it mm -hmm. felt, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. And this is it for every, I mean, talking about atta like attachment and attachment injuries. And um, I think, and so that work just, I mean, that was like the backbone of most of how I practiced. Cause that was the, the way I studied that was in couples work, but I brought it to families. And um, I love working with systems of relationships, i.e. couples and families. Um, it's so powerful, but um, it, is it's just very hard to actually get people to do it in the way that's effective. Like you can't like family therapy, you're supposed to have every single person in the family in the room, no matter what mm -hmm. the issue is. In an empty chair if they are not there, if they have the flu that week or something. Right, right. Exactly. Where people react to their presence even though they're not there. Yeah. And I when I worked in um in Colorado in community setting and in diversion, I I would get juvenile diversion where it was like teenagers who would get in trouble for stuff. And um, we had an amazing program and they put all this funding into the counseling, diversion counseling. And um, so we got to, like as therapists, we got to basically do any type of therapy we wanted and they got free indefinite therapy that no, none of the courts monitored or saw it. Any mm -hmm. other. But um, I got to do like, really cool family work and it wasn't requiring you know it wasn't mandating that people have to be there it was just the one kid but then i ended up doing like couples work with their parents and things like that and just was seeing mm -hmm. um like amazing results so quickly for these kids but then i come back here and to alabama and like nobody wants to take their whole family to mm -hmm. there like and and it's sort of hard and it's hard to and I'm from here, so I so I get that it's like that. That is very outside of what anyone. I don't, you know, it's just not something people think to do, or it's just not in the canon of how people mm -hmm. are here. You can groups too. I like we. Right. I mean, there were a couple of practices that, that were yeah. good, and they tried to do these these IOP groups and different things, and it just people don't get it. I mean, we have this conception in Alabama that group therapy is AA, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. and AA is not that. <laughs> that's yeah. The, yeah, yeah. It's not group therapy, you know, but it's like yeah. it, it, people just think if you're sitting in a circle, you have to you have to be in recovery. And I mean, group therapy. I, I don't know. Insurance doesn't pay group for it here, which is probably part of what started to kill it. Um, yeah. Now they're wanting to pay for it again. 
oh, they are? Is it effective? Yeah, they're they're trying to get people they to do groups. Save money. Yeah. Well, what? there was just that whole period where it was like, we'll just tell people, we'll give people Band-Aids and it'll get them out faster. And, and then it ends up not treating trauma actually is a lot more expensive. So now it's kind of moving back the other way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Groups are a great example. I never even tried to practice. I mean, I, you know, with groups and as part of my private practice, just because it was like knowing how you actually make a good group you're supposed to have this set number of people between these number you know between eight to twelve eight to ten people is ideal and it's supposed to be the same people show up for a certain amount of time but all the groups here are run where it's just like anyone can show up to this mm -hmm. about um postpartum depression it happens every mm -hmm. day blah, blah blah and you don't get the same group of people there and the whole point of how group therapy works is that it's you know, you're, you're bringing, kind of creating a family. You're creating a family and everybody serves as like an archetype for what's going on in your subconscious. And and same with like family work and couples work. But groups don't work like that here mm -hmm. in general, like you're saying. And um, and it seems like it's like even I, I found I just I got very disillusioned with feeling like it's like the therapists don't even most therapists that I talk to or all therapists that I talk to you don't know that even they don't even mm -hmm. know like they weren't even educated about like how a group should be run for example and people we didn't get any well I, I guess we did have a group therapy thing in my master's program and it's if you get any of it it's all based on yalom I mean his book is still the book yeah it. right right yeah but it's like people don't and to say, and like couples work and family work I got I got pretty frustrated feeling like people were doing couple and family work who don't actually know what they're doing with couples mm -hmm. and families because I really do that uh, in couple and family work, you know, you treat, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but you treat the relationship instead of the individuals. And mm -hmm. so, and it's extreme, especially with families, it's so powerful to work like that, but it's just, I don't know. It's, it's it's tough to get people to keep showing up and yeah um, and men men don't want to go to therapy you know it's just this whole um well and i think uh, therapy in general has just gotten a lot harder it's gotten more expensive you know a lot of those trauma modalities like um i mean i'm coming off the second wave of ett and it's just like i'm, I'm out I, I don't know how long it'll take to make that money back and i had a wait list before i did the training i did it because i wanted to be a better therapist but it's not like it was making me more marketable i already was full Right. Um, so it's like right. you, you carry these thousands of dollars of these new trauma modalities, you know, the brains four phases of brain spotting or whatever um, that works. And it's like a second master's degree. So, I mean, therapy overall has gotten a lot more expensive. Insurance is less. Blue Cross still does a pretty good job, but most insurance is more reticent to pay for different things. People are just working two and three jobs because um, the economy is different. When do I go to therapy? I mean, I, I have that issue where I, I want to see my therapist really more than I'm able to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when you have an entire family schedule, I mean, how do you, we, it's like, we, we can't even eat dinner together. When are we going to go to therapy? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, yeah. Cause they have to be at a certain time, you know, it has to be like after work and, Oh, I, what I was thinking, I mean, this is, you're talking about something that's I mean, it's just like, I've sort of gotten to where I feel like 
it like the whole does it feel like the whole field is sort of this pyramid scheme like it sort of turned into this pyramid scheme where it's like okay in order to be successful you need to keep adding on these trainings and these trainings and paying and paying these you know pay the gottmans this much money mm -hmm. to use this practice which mm -hmm. whereas like the boards are going to tell us like it's not evidence-based if you're not doing this therapy that you're going to have to pay this much money to even say you're doing. It's just, yeah, that is so something that I, I am really turned off by some of those models is you can read the book and understand the system and see what he's doing. But I mean, some of those trainings, they're like, okay, you can pay $2,000 and you can do level one through three, but you can't even say that you do this model without getting sued by me until you've gotten this, right. whatever. And it's like, man, no, yeah. like, yeah, I don't, and I don't know. And like mental health practitioners do not have money for, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, we already don't, you know, you know, we don't make any money, like, <laughs> and, which I, is fine, but like, but it's, it just feels very victimizing of, yeah, of people who already, I mean, then not to mention the clients, like, well, just the microtransactions of on everything that modernity is kind of moving the economy towards where it's like you, you can't own the movie you can't own the whatever you just have to pay twenty dollars to every screaming streaming service ever all the time and right you know, what is even i mean it's not just therapy i mean a lot of these realities just are across industry but um yeah and it's like you know, well so what did we pay for, for to have our degree and our license because it's like that doesn't it's well, and at least for the masters I went to, I mean, you really didn't learn how to do therapy in school. I mean, I was trying to take classes and read books and which is expensive, you know, academic books to know how to do therapy for four years so that I could do it because I didn't feel yeah. like, you know, the couple classes on CBT and DBT that I got in school were going to prepare me to do anything. Yeah. Well, I, I, okay. I did feel like my program was really, really great for actually learning therapy um and i don't know if that was a function of it be of it being a cpce counselor psycho counseling psychology and counselor education program which i didn't even really know the distinction before i went into my program and then figured out that it was like oh i really like that it's like preparing you to either be a therapist or teach therapists how to mm -hmm. do and I, you know, if you like the history of psychology and stuff, it's like so much fun to study how therapy mm -hmm. is a way that you could like help other therapists. It's so fascinating. Um, and it was, yeah, I, I felt very, very prepared. And we worked in the, we were counselors in the, um, in the university counseling center where we had like glass and and people and our peers like watched us through the glass and on a, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the LPC programs, you definitely get way, way more therapy stuff, you know, only because it's, it's what they do, you know, where social work's huge. I mean, I could manage a nonprofit. I could work with geriatrics. I could be on a psych ward. So there's, yeah, there's all, you know, you, it's the d difference in whatever. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the upside is you come out of school knowing how to do therapy as an LPC, which is nice. And one of the downsides is you can't really do anything else. So there's some people who sort of get tired of doing therapy or yeah. don't really like people, but then they are an LPC, so they can't go do the short job. So they're kind of, that's that's one of the, you want to be really sure that you yeah, want to do therapy good... forever before you agree. Because, you know, I can reinvent myself and hop around, you know, as a social worker into different, different, uh, a ton of different oh, areas. That's so true. But, that's true. You know, really not a ton of social workers are working in therapy exclusively. Yeah. It is yeah. mostly social workers at Taproot, though. Christy and Marie are all. I feel like in Alabama, I just feel. And in Colorado, there were like 
um, it's, it's, I mean, it's so different state to state, you know, that's mm -hmm. the, another part of kind of what we're talking about it is, is it's which licenses are the good ones to have or is different state to state. Like, I feel like my LMFT is not that big of a, it's not that super valuable in Alabama. Insurance don't pay for it. Like yeah. the LMFTs that want to bill for insurance, what you have to do is say, well, this is the identified patient and that's the collateral patient who's there to come to help this patient's goals. But if you divorce or something, only the patient has the right to the medical record and then you bill it as individual therapy. You know, I don't do marriage counseling, um, but that's that's what most of the marriage counselors do if it's covered by insurance. Right. Um, which, right. I, mean, I don't know, you know, I, uh, that's going to make it a lot harder for LMFTs to have a big marriage and family therapy yeah. practice. Unless you, like, I mean, and but then if you're in somewhere like Colorado, LMFTs are paid more than everybody else. Paid more yeah. than workers. Or California. In, and I was going to say California. Yeah. So, yeah, California. You throw but I do feel like MFT. workers are way more in, in Alabama. Way more. Um, I don't know. It's is it, there. It's bigger, but I don't know. I feel like they're more respected in Alabama. But yeah, you do definitely want to know the state you're moving to um, and the state you're in when you're going to school. Because um, school's so expensive now, you just don't want to get the wrong degree. Right. Um, I was wondering. Um, like you, could you say anything about brain spotting when Alex, when Alice starts with us, she'll have the brain spotting training, like everybody else, um, uh, that does the individual adult therapy at Taproot. Um, so you, you had tried a little bit of it and then decided to get the training. Do you want to say anything about the experience or you want to kind of wait till you're out of, out of, uh, out of training or I don't know. I was just wondering if you could give people who are listening, who may want to come see you that are local or, um, anything, some information about, you know, yeah, I think, I mean, I, okay, so yeah, I have not done the training yet, so I'm not, <laughs> my blurb is not going to be, but I, I am excited about, um, so, okay, I love, my practice kind of led me into um, more trauma-based, uh, are you still there? Mm -hmm. Sorry. Okay, trauma-based um, therapy, like I, I just, I ended up having a lot of women who were coming to me with history of sexual abuse, whether it's people presenting for eating disorders, people presenting for depression, people presenting for all these different things. And then it's like, actually, okay, everyone has sexual trauma, apparently. So it's, I, I think it's like, there's so much trauma that people just don't even know how to begin to get into, like, mm -hmm. to get in, to acknowledge that it's there or really even, um, like identify it as trauma like mm -hmm. yeah like my uh like my mom was, i was sorry, just like my mom was gonna watch this or not like my mom had an abuser when she was little and when i finally found out about it it's like she's just sort of like she didn't identify it as abuse like she didn't say it like that it's like it's like she, this was a creepy tennis tennis teacher who blah, blah, like touched her and I don't know, but she, it's like something she thinks sort of is funny. And it's like, no, you mm -hmm. were like, and like, that's not right. But people kind of, and so it would never occur. That's what's like, interesting. Those, de those defensive parts, when you're doing brain spotting, they flare up. Uh huh. And one of the things that the most, one of the reactions that the most, they, cause it, it's, the patient feels embarrassed. And I'm always like, no, this is, you know, qualified and you help make room for it. One of the most common reactions with the most traumatized people is you know they their body feels all sweaty and hot and like they don't want to re-experience the thing and then they start laughing and then they can't stop laughing but going back into that 
place, that's this pretty strong defensive reaction is to that laugh. Is my mother for sure. She, the brain spotting will pull you through it. I'm like, no, just laugh as much as you need to. We're like, still going to go. <laughs> the person's like, I'm sorry, I'm taking it seriously. I'm not laughing at you. And I'm like, no, I understand. I've, I've done it myself. Like, let's go through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I, I really have come around to being, this is part of what I was disillusioned with was just so many of our, pro or all of the approaches besides maybe EMDR are so based in like you need to be able to put into words what happened to you and you need to even like with EMDR like, though you're starting heard and what yeah, the, the, the analysis of it well well even yeah. with EMDR you're still like what is the happy belief let's replace what's well, the bad belief let's replace it you know as soon as they start to feel anything you're talking you know whereas yeah. with brain spotting you talk as long as you need to to get them to go down there but once they're there, be quiet and get out of the way. Let them go. Yeah. You know, the deep brain knows what it's for. But it was like EMDR, I always felt like, because I mean, it works. EMDR works. And it was the best tool that I had when I was first coming out of school. But for very, very traumatized people or dissociation, it's like you're fighting past those defenses for so long with these eye movements. I mean, I was doing two-hour sessions sometimes. Um, and it's effective. But it just, brain spotting was more effective for more people more of the time, more profoundly. And I'm always looking for what is the, the kind of biggest, biggest net. Yeah. Um, I dogs are barking. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can let them um, yeah, I it, it's I, I I think it's just I I think being through a, having a profound so I had a lot of trauma trauma growing up that's like complex trauma where it's like, I can't, it's very hard to pinpoint individual minds. Mm -hmm. And so with EMDR, you know, you're supposed to come up with these, like a list of all your trauma. Mm -hmm. And like, as a person who has had trauma, it's just like, I, it, it's like therapists, do you even understand what it is to have had like trauma your whole childhood? Because I'm not going to be able to come up with a list of like five things, five. It never things. stopped. I never felt like, you know, what, what do you mean? Tell me the event, you know? It's yeah. A, it's, yeah. It's in yeah, your period. Yeah, like. yeah. I don't have an event like, okay. I can identify. Okay. My sister had a big boating accident. Okay. That's, mm -hmm. some, that's an event, but like all the rest of the stuff was just kind of like ongoing trauma. Like, and how do you, and, it's well, but I mean, trauma is a feeling that, you you know, you can't handle so much that you have to have some kind of coping mechanism, dissociation or whatever. But because you can't feel it, it's stored, you know, and then you have to go back and process it later. But some of that is acute that there's a boating accident or car wreck or somebody hits me when I'm a kid or something. But a ton of it may be so nebulous that it's hard to even find or identify. Like, you know, I had like a lot of uh, patients that I've had, they've had a patient uh, parents that were real moralistic or religious and the pa the parent never said anything that even if you had a transcript would constitute emotional abuse they were just always being like you don't understand how the world is everyone out there is going to try and get you and you, you everyone in the world and there's all these evil forces and you know look everywhere all the time and 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 the child is panicking and afraid of everything but they don't even know what they're afraid you know what i mean like and right. that their whole experience with life is that it's scary and bad and going to hurt them and that is the trauma, you know, and it, it never, it's not one thing. It's this nebulous, whatever. How do you target something like that? You know, yeah. um, and I, I guess EMDR or CBCT would say, turn it into a belief. Um, but I mean, something like that is just so complex and huge. It's that somebody never felt safe 
anywhere in their life. And that's one of the things with complex trauma patients a ton. The first session is I'll ask them, do they kind of go through their history? And I'm like, is there anywhere in your life ever that you felt safe? And they'll think, and they're like, no, that is so sad. And it's like it, the first time that they've realized like, oh, I went from this childhood to this relationship, to this relationship, to this marriage, to now where I'm out and trying, and they never had any place where they felt okay. Right. Right. And that's something so nebulous that it, I think it's very, um, when I was in the middle of some punctuated acute trauma that where I was going to therapy for this, like a few years ago, it was, it, it's so, um, it's so minimizing to be asked to like put into words stuff that you've never been able. And it, it makes you feel like your trauma is not legitimate if you're not mm -hmm. able to describe it to somebody. But I really think that there's also like, we shouldn't have to describe it because I really believe that putting language to things where we are, our brains haven't put stored them in a language place. Like, I think that that's like a lower level of consciousness and our traumas are stored in this place where it's like your brain is trying to radiate them out of you and to put them into words, mm -hmm. like artificial words is like a way of crystallizing the trauma. And I think locking it in more than it needs to be because the words are never going to even, I mean, and the words are not going to represent what I mean, it's like with EMDR, where we have this, I like, I love the list of like fears and be, like beliefs, faulty beliefs about yourself that you get when you do the mm -hmm. training, like the list of, okay, am I, is my belief, I am worthless. I am, mm -hmm. I can't trust myself. I am going to be abandoned. Like, it's a very lovely little list to have. have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't, but it's still like people go down the list and then they're trying to narrow down which one. So there's just like this artificiality about it, no matter how you cut it, somebody else's words and you can't like beliefs don't have, are not necessarily stored as words. It's stored mm -hmm. as instinct and intuition, you know, when it's that trauma. Or somebody could have been unconscious during a trauma. Their body remembers something that intellectually I don't have access to. They could have been drugged. You yeah. know, children make memories at different ages in ways that are pretty kind of semantic um, you know, like yeah. you don't start to have like narrative dreams until you're three or four, you know, a right. two year old will just dream like a color or an object and then they'll, yeah. they'll say it like, um, and, and so like a ton of times it's never going to be. And even if it, even if you do have that sort intellectually and you do come across a repressed memory or something, which is not terribly common, um, you know, but possible, it's never going to, the, the point is never, well, is Colonel Mustard in the green room with the rope? This is what happened. You go through the emotion yeah. first, you go through the body first and you get, you regulate and you get all this out. And if the memory needs to come back, it will, you know, but it doesn't yeah. always need to come back. And and that's never the point is, is trying, and that's trying to, and that's where you get therapists that are kind of implanting memories and suggesting things. And cause you're trying to do all this an analytical stuff. I mean, there's so many people who had this just profound change and, you know, we had a pretty good idea, probably what happened to them as a kid in some environment, but it, the point was to get better. It wasn't to ever completely remember that experience. And in some cases they couldn't ever completely remember that experience because they were semi-conscious or, um, you know, they, they were using drugs or something. And it's like the memory wasn't written into the brain perfectly like a video. Right. We think of PTSD, like 
we still think of PTSD as a culture, like it's shot in movies, you know, that the firework goes off at the cookout and then somebody's like, Bob, Bob, you okay? And, and the put, footage of Vietnam plays on the tape. But it, it's not that it's, it's that my body is starting to feel like I'm angry. I need to fight. And then you say something that's a little bit off. And then that I have a out of size reaction to that. And my emotions are kind of running the show. You know, that that's it more so than, than the little videotape of the bad experience that just plays and plays. The re-experiencing right. is is real, but it's very, you know, maybe ten percent of it is 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 visual or you know, prefrontal cortex memory. Right, because your prefrontal cortex shuts down when you're in fight or flight, yep. which is why it's like we don't naturally. It's a lack of sync. I mean, that's when my body's feeling something that I know isn't true up here, and then I keep feeling that thing. And you know, a lot of the newer research on why brain spawning or psilocybin or a lot of the brain-based medicine works is that it's resyncing the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, so they're on the same page. Yeah, yeah, but we don't. Yeah, it's we need to do that from a higher level rather than from our intellectual level. I really think. I mean, and some of my most profound work was with clients who had, you know, sexual abuse or neglect or things like that, where we never actually like had a session where somebody's like intimately describing being touched or, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. Like, it's like, you kind of like with some people, it was just like, you know, you like talk around it, like you flow with the person and mm -hmm. kind of brush up against it. But like, you would say be in the tail of the comet, you're going to hear that at brain spotting training a whole lot that the patient's <laughs> experience is going and that you can kind of observe it, but you don't want to get in the way or direct it. You're just following it and letting it, yeah. letting it go with the energy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I, I would see clients who, um, I was, okay, so I was seeing a lot of pe or people who were presenting more with like sexual abuse and trauma and um, was really loving that work, dissociative disorders. But the people who I was seeing with dissociative identity disorder had been to therapists who it felt like to, or it sounded like to me had basically like like even more crystallized the parts that were there, like instead mm -hmm. of integrating the parts the, it's like the therapist is like, I, it's like this self-indulgent therapy thing where it's like, they're trying to get the, I know exactly the models of psychotherapy that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and it's where it's this, it's like, I'm just going to take a borderline person and regress them down to a two-year-old and then reenact this yeah. fight about maternal, whatever with them. And, and I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I've, I've seen those, and I. But it, there's not an integrative part. It's yeah. this re-experiencing so like the individual part. The parts aren't naturally coming out. They're like as, but you know, parts come out to cope with something in the moment. And so, if you're unnaturally dragging a part out, you're connecting. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't know. You know, you're connecting it to different parts of your of the experience that that part doesn't necessarily need to be involved in. It's yeah, yeah. It's re. It can be very re-traumatizing to. I my experience with EMDR is it was exactly what you were describing. It was like I saw it do magic for thirty percent of people and do nothing for the seventy percent, uh -huh. and was like, "What is the part for people who this works for, and what is it really doing?" And I loved the little belief list at first, and then slowly started to find that limiting. And mm -hmm. then I and I, my practice has evolved a lot, you know, but. I was saying like, okay, I'm going to do a somatic trauma map. So we're not even going to worry about talking about the belief and the good thing and replacing whatever. We're just going to do like this whole thing of like emotionally, what does this feel like? Where is it physically in your body? How does your posture want to move? You know, all in the person 
trying to get that subcortical activity. And then I would start doing the eye movements. And that's when I would notice that when the eye movement would go past a certain spot, the pupil would wibble. And so I was like, well, what if I stop here? And then people started going into crashing into processing. Um, and I didn't know what it was doing. And then multiple people, you know, EMDR was just so protocol driven. Every I kept paying for more um, trainings and they were like, no, don't do that. Just do the 15. And I was like, but they, they're asking me to do it. The patient's been in EMDR forever. I haven't been a therapist for two months. I don't know what's happening. And then somebody was like, well, that sounds like brain spotting. So I paid to talk to David Grant. Um, and David was like, yeah, that's exactly, you discovered exactly what I discovered. I was a brain spotting practitioner. I was an EMDR practitioner working with Shapiro. Shapiro said, if you change my model, you're not doing EMDR. And I noticed that brain EMDR was opening up every single brain spot a little bit. So you were starting to get the person to feel every single issue that they had. Yeah. A small amount, but not going all the way to the bottom of any of them. And then I could surgically go in on these different spots that the eye associates with kind of stored trauma. And yeah. it, it sounds cranky. I mean, I, if I heard this, if I heard myself say this 10 years ago, I'd be like, I would have turned the podcast off. You know, it took me being in the room with people who patients who I really loved and cared about and was desperate to help trying everything that I had finding this and it just worked, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and then it worked for me. I went to the training. I didn't get anything out of EMDR at my EMDR training. I went to the brain spotting training dissociated for 20 minutes, you know, and, and had this huge profound experience that, you know, it was very helpful and um, also very humbling because you it's not fun to realize how messed up you know, we are. Or it wasn't fun for me to realize that we need to. No, yeah, it's not. But I mean, it can, they, I don't know. That's where the profound growth is, though, because underneath our pain, we have such depth. Like all the pain mm. trauma victims have been through is just the sign of a very expansive soul, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think. Um, well, and, and like you're saying with the world, I mean, just the speed of the world right now, I feel like it makes people feel gaslit and out of control and upset and, you know, all these things. That yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, we're being traumatized constantly. And I, I wish that there was better language because trauma is, it's, it's hard to come up with another word besides trauma, but I really believe that we are. But it is limiting in that what kind of trauma are you talking about, it, you know? Yeah, but I really believe that we're like traumatized by various experiences in our society. We're traumatized by various experiences and then we're never able to come out of that flight or flight mode. So we're always in low key fight or flight mode and then being mm -hmm. fed these traumas like people. Well, there's you know, money in it. If the day. news is saying this group of people is going to come kill you and it has a big bearing on your life, I mean, yeah, probably. Look at, all these, look at all these dead people, dead children, and you need to. And I. I don't know. It's I, adrenaline. I, adrenaline is what's going to sell. You know, right. it's what's going to keep me clicking or reading or, you know, whatever right. gets the, the metric up that month. But it's, we've gotten everybody's brains so shut Addicted. down. Like everyone's in fight or flight. And you, when your prefrontal cortex is, is shut down, you cannot make normal decisions. You can't make like basic decisions about your life. You can't concretely think about things. And people don't realize that this is happening. It's like, you know, people are going about their lives just feeling so frazzled and they don't realize that it's like, no, you're in acute trauma, basically, <laughs> because of all this, you know, all the, I think we're just so, I, I think the advent of technology, it just puts in our face so much more trauma than we're ever, or so much more, you know, in terms of current events and things like that than we're actually meant to process as humans. Mm -hmm. like we're, you know, meant to care about 
everybody within a t 10 mile radius of us maybe <laughs> and mm -hmm. then and like but outside of that it's like we don't you know we haven't like built up the capacity to we don't have the capacity to care about every single child in the whole world like you care yeah but yeah like, i mean that is like, true here and grieve every single person like i don't mean that in a hard hard line i don't know that sounds so cold but i don't it's like you can care but when we're told you need to care about uh here are 20 pictures of dead people a day that you're supposed to grieve like mm -hmm. they're people that you know and you shut down emotionally because you can't yeah and they're killing the now you know killing the wolves and killing the rainforest and you know all these all these things that are so awful that we're inundated with all the time and it just makes us so we can't even deal with the things that are actually in front of our faces and so mm -hmm. we're being traumatized on this national level and on this individual level but, well, and they've done, you know, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's caring about 10 people kind of in a group is what we do. We're, we're trying to make our brains do all this stuff that they're not designed to do. And so we're doing it imperfectly. And that stress and anxiety has to go somewhere. It has to go into alcohol or the body or to uh -huh. you know, what is anger, you know. But, like, they've done studies. And it's like, and the more people that live close to you, the less people you know. I mean, somebody yeah. who lives in an apartment will not know their neighbor. Somebody who lives in rural Scotland will know the person who lives 14 miles away. Oh, well, Ben did, you know. Yeah, we were like we when my dad wanted to go back to Ireland to encounter his um, heritage or whatever, and we're like trying to find the last relative, and uh, it's kind of dark. But like we we went to one guy, they're like, "Oh, old Ben is the one that knows all the people," and then you know, you stop at all these farmhouses, and but I mean, you're driving over 200, or I don't know how long it was, but it's huge. It took all day long. Um, the roads are uh, slow and curvy, so it probably maybe wasn't that huge of a distance, but like um the the one you know this guy knew everybody and could tell you whatever and you know we finally ended up in the town where the last um you know i don't remember the name it wasn't blackstock but whatever the last one was supposed to be and they were like oh he drank too much whiskey last night and he fell into the fire and burned up you should have come a week ago I was like, oh, no. are you serious <laughs> lord yes <laughs> um so, what <laughs> that was the, that was what the the, the guy said <laughs> that's a that's a good story <laughs> anyway drama <laughs> what does it mean <laughs> i'm sorry i don't i don't know <laughs> no i know i'm just you know <laughs> uh yeah but yeah the more that you the more people that are around you the less people you know and we start to build these walls to protect ourselves um and so this inundated news stuff it's profitable to keep people panicked all the time but what does that do you know to society to kids over a long period of time Right. Makes everybody, um, I don't know. My, my, I was about to say stupid and mm -hmm. my son is in kindergarten. I don't know if your daughter, your daughter's in kindergarten too, but my son's wife's like, don't say stupid. <laughs> and they get in trouble for saying stupid in school and I'm trying to not say stupid. And I, yeah, it's, it's a good, th good point. This is what that means, but don't <laughs> say that at school is something that we say <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He's always screaming at me and my my parents. BB, don't say stupid. <laughs> my parents are like, um, yeah. Oh, but like brain spotting, right? Okay. So I it's I think what's what I'm excited about is that it's um it unlike EMDR, like you're saying, you don't have to put everything into words before you can work on it. Mm -hmm. think, um, like I have this, I the what I experience is. I always go into this, it feels like performance anxiety almost. Like when you're, when 
you know, somebody's asking me, like when you're asking me like, okay, what are you thinking about? Or what do you want to work on? And then I just go blank. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, and it's like, I always, I always like attributed that to just like, okay, that's just me. And I'm my, like, these are my issues and blah, blah, blah. But I think that that is like a big, I think that that's a common thing with trauma survivors is like, you're put on the spot, like, tell me your intimate. Yeah. What's on your brain and then you it's like your dissociation just is like triggered immediately and so it's helpful it's helpful for me when you're like okay here I'm, i can just find find a brain spot and work with it and let's see what comes of that like that i feel like mm-hmm. is really actually very deceptively powerful to be able to be like i don't know what i'm thinking because it's like i don't know what i'm thinking and then i then i panic and then it's like i could it's like the trauma i don't know you know trauma i the feelings are there like, okay, I'm going to cry because I'm so now I'm embarrassed because I can't think of what to say. And like, I'm never going to be able to think of what my trauma is to be able to advocate for myself. You know, it like Mm. triggers all these, all these fears, but none of which I can put into words because I just go like freeze. It's that, you know, fight, flight. Mm -hmm. Well, and and that's the thing is trauma makes you not know what is wrong. You feel like everything's wrong. And so you don't remember the event a ton of the time they got you there or events or your period, but you're sitting there being like, I don't like that on the news. Oh, well, the waiter didn't pay attention to me. This like, you're trying to attach the anxiety to all these things that would explain it. Uh And then that's exhausting you. And it's driving the people around you, um, you know, to, to be tired of (laughs) that behavior a lot of the time. And, and, but you're just trying to attach this ambient anxiety that your body's holding to the thing to figure out what the problem is. And and they're talking about it more with the therapist. Yeah creating new neural pathways connecting to your trauma. So you're just generalizing your trauma even more than it was before. That makes Mm. sense. Like, I just feel like when we're creating these arbitrary connections to language structures in certain ways, when language isn't already coming, like language is a tool, it's an adaptation. But if it's, if stuff is not already in language, I think a lot of the time that can, Chris, it crystallizes it. This is Mm -hmm. is where I've, I've just gotten so into kind of the spiritual aspect of all that stuff. And it just like keeping it, well, I don't know. I won't get into that really, but. Um, well, I mean, and and we, we probably don't want to keep you too long, um, but it's wonderful to have another co-host, but I mean, maybe like one way of saying that is that, you know, we've got that prefrontal cortex nihilistic ego brain of you are only what you do, what you can see, taste, touch, smell, uh-huh. accomplish. And then um, we have this kind of mystical subcortical brain that is, you know, spiritual, maybe myopic if it's overindulged or kind of childlike, but maybe at the risk of being childish. And and from its perspective, you know, we're all connected and everything is the Zen-like experience. Um, and we are what we feel very much. Whereas the other one is we are only what we do. And those pieces of self don't really want to be in the same head, you know. So yeah. much of the fights between therapy models come back to that. And I think the best models make room to hold both. And you see yeah. that kind of perennial language. Like Adler says, well, it's compensation for everything on big on the inside there or on the outside there's a big thing on the inside and Jung says the tension of the opposites and you know I think Freud's psychology was very good at describing Freud's own psychology um, <laughs> <laughs> um that you, yeah sorry I said good old Freud <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah I, I I don't know if that is is uh, is helpful but and that's kind of what I see is giving people permission to do both because people feel like, well, I can't feel that's irresponsible. I know all this stuff's true, so I can't feel that. And it's like, no, maybe, you know, you've made mistakes too, but you're still mad that this person made a mistake. It's okay to be mad. You're not going to tell them, you know, 
Yeah. Um, or, you know, that the person only wants to feel and you're having to say, yeah, I mean, you you maybe have the purest heart ever, but you still have to you know be at work on time or you're probably going to get fired. That's that's real. You know, if I was king of the world, I'd change that. I'm, I'm not, you know, um, <laughs> like we can't intuit this away. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want that job. Um, but uh yeah, I don't. We can't wait to work with you. It's so excited. Um, and, and we'll have to do another episode after the brain spawning training, uh, kind of about what your experience with it was and everything, because that's one of the biggest questions that we get. Uh, I'm like writing that email or having that phone call for providers out of the state all the time, where they're like, "You said brain spawning. I'm interested. How do I do it? Where do I do it? What's it like?" So probably having a if I if I have to have the same meeting with people, you know, ten twenty times, I usually am like, "I want to shoot a podcast or a video on this topic so that I can just send you that and then." You know, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah I'm, I'm sure it'll be interesting who did you sign up with or who are you doing it with um that is a great question i can't remember her name she's in atlanta um but this i Cynthia did Schwartzberg? synthesis that, that sounds familiar she's in atlanta that's who that's who did mine it was, okay. it was good it was a good oh, maybe i'm okay i can't remember i'll t i'll tell you i did get my book and my pointer in the mail there yesterday oh so yeah they sent you the book yeah, I wish they would send you his book with ETT because the ETT training, like you really like it opens up so much when you read the book, but they don't the brain spotting sending you David's book before. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. I have. I'm, I'm excited to look at it. Gonna... Is there like anything else you want to like tell people about your practice or just kind of say as an introduction? And I'm really happy that we've got another you know voice on here because it's uh, probably nice for people to not just uh, hear me. Uh, <laughs> no pine. <laughs> Yeah, this is fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, not in particular. I mean, now we're, it's like, okay, I don't know how to put it into language, Joel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, yeah. I, um, I, I, there's a lot that I, that is hard to put into language about, about the changes in my perspective that have everything to do with, um, kind of the effects of trauma really blowing up the parts of your brain that are connected to something like a i really think about like the collective unconscious like mm -hmm. about and things like that and um and people who have spiritual experiences with trauma like that is a, it's extremely common for people who aren't spiritual at all or aren't religious like me um to have to experience spiritual like a profoundly spiritual experience with associated with trauma um that seems to be happening more and more to providers like i know so many providers that are just kind of clung to this very kind of rational perspective scientific perspective and then all of a sudden they are they encounter some kind of therapy that gives them this transcendental experience and they kind of yeah. feel humbled you know in a, in a way to sit with yes. this other part of them you know Absolutely. whatever part is repressed the other part calls to you Yes, because I've never been, <laughs> I've always been very interested in like philosophy, but I've, I've always identified as an atheist. And so it was just, I think it's, um, but I, it made me realize like it is very humbling. And then I've kind of realized that a lot of the things that we just throw away is that psychosis, that's not real. That's, and we don't really know what that means. It's just like this category of like, okay, we don't understand what that person's talking about. So we're just going to mm. call it psychosis. But there's so many, you know, our, 
our DNA is capable of, I mean, our bodies are capable of so much more than mm -hmm. we, um, well, the ego wants to be all we are. You know, it's very threatening to the prefrontal cortex language and time-sensing brain to say, what if there's this whole other part of me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just by itself, it just by its nature, it has to kind of protect itself from that. Uh, yeah. I think I stuff like I realized or I've learned in our society, we do everything that like in calcifies like the pineal gland in our brain our pineal gland is connected to circadian rhythms and and our connection to something that feels spiritual like meaning and things like that and um, um our society we really suppress the pineal gland's ability to connect to it has crystals in it that um piezoelectric crystals that hook into yeah it, it, it transmits your brain waves um, um this is real i'm not it's not it's like real neuroscience um that we just kind of ignore it's like something that it's like okay well we know that the pineal gland does something in this realm and it makes people feel like mm -hmm. they're god and then we just throw and then it's like but there's not a god so there's not there's nothing beyond humans but and, but so many people have these spiritual experiences and are trying to integrate them and reconcile them with things that have happened and i think it's yeah, like honoring people where people are and what they're yeah wherever they are that they're, wherever they're that they're mulling over things that are turning around in their heads there's to honor people's experiences is like you're not going crazy that you are feeling like you're yeah yeah you're not going crazy to, to suddenly have feel like you're having spiritual experiences this is normal for trauma mm -hmm. populations and we're not quite sure what it means but we can work with it just like just like you know we're not sure what depression means but we can but we work with it you know we can identify yeah. some markers for depression but we really don't you know like you're saying that it's it's all kind of a metaphor like what is self-esteem it's about lumping symptoms together to say maybe enough yeah. of these boxes being checked is this thing that we can label um yeah. and it's steven dr steven vasquez that did the ett training for me was saying during one of the things that on the light device and some of the um, things that are more likely to give you a transcendental experience to treat deeper trauma that a ton of the people are like, I'm an atheist, but I just talked to my dead wife and I don't know what that was, but thank you. I'm, I feel better and I, but it, it doesn't change. And he's like, okay, that's fine. I'm not trying to change your mind. Um, yeah. you know, I was raised in the Episcopal church, which in Alabama is kind of mystical. And the thing I, like, I liked about the Episcopal church growing up, not every church is like that. Uh, not every Episcopal church is like that, but the, the ones that I encountered, people kind of agreed that it was more important to get along and to love each other than to agree on everything. And so uh, there were people who were incredibly literal believers, you know, um, and then there were people who were very, I mean, they, essentially they're atheists that believed in community and coming here and that we were, you know, working on this greater project of making the world better. And then there were people kind of in the middle that liked metaphor, but didn't think, you know, I, I don't know, like it just, and people went there. I mean, the point was that this was a good thing. We're doing it because it's good. We don't all have to sit down and figure out exactly what it what we believe perfectly i mean there's some you know theology in the catholic in the in the episcopal church but usually like um when you go through um what do you call it uh confirmation or whatever the, the classes are them being like this is what baptists think this is what catholics think you can think whatever you <laughs> they're like them reviewing the theology was it was it was pretty loose that's how that's how i grew up in the episcopal church as well and that's also but 
<laughs> my line in therapy is always just like I'm a therapist, not a priest. You know, I, I can tell you, we I can let you you know, go through yeah. it and make room for it, but I don't, I don't know why. You know, I'm, I'm and, totally. and, and my why yeah. is not your why. So let's. That's the fine line where it's like all of a sudden I am thinking about these these spiritual concepts, but I've always been so turned off and very offended by therapists who bring their own religion into therapy and bring their mm-hmm. own. Especially without happens. asking. There's some people yeah. that say, are you a Christian or are you a Christian in this way? Can we pray? And the patient feels safer. You know, I've, I've had patients that had that experience, but when you're, when you're just bringing it in because you think that's right, I feel like that's disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't allow room for people to, I mean, it's kind of the, I don't know, the levels of our psyche that really need to be restructured are these deep, deep, seated beliefs which relate to spirituality and things like that and when you come in as a therapist and say well this is the basic framework of what we're of the truth of everything and now let's do therapy you're really missing you're missing the the really good work that you can do which is like really going back in and and helping people to structure and like restory like what is my basic experience of life Mm -hmm. Um, what is my basic what are my basic beliefs or not even beliefs, but just like the way that I am in the world and who I am. And yeah, I mean, identity is a relationship between the self and the body in the world in this way that, you know, what is it? David Tacey uh, had a talk to the Sydney, Australia, Young Society. And he was saying like, um, self is not a destination. It is a process. It is a process of you trying yeah. to contain the collective unconscious and hold on to an ego, you know, but that this it is moving back and forth between these things. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's it, a process. It's we're in time we're in times time space and requires mm-hmm. everything be a process. If you're in the quantum field, it doesn't have to be a process, but where we are, you have to go through the motions and we have to, you know, we do have a physical brain that needs that you know, we can, there are ways to restructure it really quickly that we're learning about, but it's still, you have to move some stuff around physically. Like there's going to be process around the changes mm-hmm. that need to happen in order for you to be um, actualized or transcend this reality. Um, and I really believe that people can, we don't, in Western society, we don't acknowledge enlightenment and transcendence and actualization as being real. People come to therapy for different reasons. Some patients, that's never going to be part of their thing. They just want to quit biting their nails, you know, and I, I can do that too. You know, come back if you <laughs> come back when you want to do something else. Yeah. Or, or, or it's don't. lovely yeah. to see people who just, who just need help biting their, uh, to quit biting their nails. Although that's very, that's very difficult to do. I, I was as a, as a nail biter from when I was little, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> difficult to break that, break that. It is. <laughs> Well, I, I thank you so much for getting on today. And um, we have Alice's page will go live on our website soon if it's not up already. Um, so if you are interested in booking with her, um, she, you know, she's got an email on her website, on her bio page on our website if you have a question for her. And you can go ahead and get on the wait list. We're not exactly sure when you're going to start working because we got to get furniture and some some practical stuff going. Um, but um, it could be, you know, soon as next month, definitely not longer than than three months. So. Okay. We yeah. will see we'll see where we end up. But if you want to get on the waitlist for Alice, um, we yeah. our waitlist is like I don't even know where it is now. I need to ask Lily, but it went it was out like 
a year and a half. And so I, hopefully it'll really move now. And this would be the time to, to call since a lot of times, um, just when you have a, a new therapist that's starting full time and has no patients, generally that's a good time to <laughs> load me up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really excited that your practice is so cool. I'm, I'm totally. Well, it's our practice. It's not, it's collective. It's, it's everybody's. Yeah. But, um, you, you bring Ring leader. <laughs> well, that's yeah. the, you're the spirit of the practice and that's and what you're doing is really, y'all are doing really cool work. Yeah, and um, I um, I can't I can't wait for you to meet everybody because it is a cool community, and uh, I'm really looking forward to you getting started. And now that Peak is established, and just kind of taking time to be a community again and actually sit down and run cases because it's been a hairy six seven months. Yeah, um, for me it's just been just thirteen hour days. You know, I, I do therapy um, for half of it, and then the other stuff adds up. But it is it's a nice community. I mean, I I'm proud of our practice. I feel like. Um, I mean, one, you know, people make more than they would have individually, which is important to me. Um, and then two, like we all kind of have a voice and a place and have made something better together than we could have individually. Definitely better than I could have made by myself with all you guys. So I don't know. That's neat. That, that was always what I wanted to do since I was a kid is somehow have community, you know, and um, and been, always wanted to be a therapist. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's a new thing, but it's scary. <laughs> or, you know, it's it, when we were moving you in though, I was realizing like we're pretty far along in this thing. Like I tend to think it pretty new, but you were asking like how many rooms was taproot? And it's like, wow, it's, it's actually in practice now. <laughs> so, I know, so. I know. <laughs> like that. Um, and yeah, just a few months ago, I was very much like, I don't think I'm going to be a therapist anymore. <laughs> yes. I was like trying to figure out how I relate to the field and everything. And I'm very excited about being able to move in a direction that actually feels authentic. I didn't know. Um, I'm just, I'm really excited about working with y'all. Well, we're excited to work with you. My new, my new clients. I'm so excited to meet everybody. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Alice. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, gettherapybirmingham.com. Again, that's gettherapybirmingham.com is where you would find more information if you're local. Um, and if you want to subscribe to the podcast or check out the YouTube, that's where you do it. Um, thank you all so much. And, you know, reach out for, for anything. Awesome. Thank you. Come say you might go crazy. Then again, it might make you go crazy.